Chris, I've got something to tell you about the world we live in. It is the dumbest possible. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Did you see uh, Kodak has a cryptocurrency now? Uh Uh-huh. And they're selling you like, uh, like... A Bitcoin miner, and there's a contract. Yeah, and, and you got to pay them whatever Kodak. Bitcoins you come up with. Yeah, like half of the coins. Yeah, that, not good. I don't understand. This is so weird. It's just... Yeah, it ugh. is. And their stock price went up? <laughs> of course, yeah, like it went up like 40% or something, right? Because, um, I don't know, this is the world we live in. Let me... Uh, okay, I'm switching over to my, my quiet mouse here the podcasting mouse you have okay. a podcasting mouse all right well it's a mouse that doesn't make a clicky noise so see here's here's the uh the old mouse clicking clicking yeah clicking yeah okay here here's this one i can't actually still hear that one for what it's worth well i was holding it like 2 inches from the microphone oh, gotcha. okay yeah it is it is soft yeah you can probably still hear it like scraping around on the desk but you know what are you going to do i i have some crypto now so uh what what do you have i just bought some bitcoin um Um, i hmm. yeah exactly so i i bought like not a lot like 400 dollars worth just to be like let's just see what happens and i probably lost a ton of value in it and it was down to like the and and the coinbase app will show you like how much total value you have and i had Mm -hmm. like you know in the low 300s for a little while so i lost quite a bit yeah, you want to you want to buy high, sell low. Is that's that, is right, that that's the strategy that I'm going with here? Um, now it's at three forty seven, so I'm still a little bit short. But it was in the positive; it was above four hundred uh, a couple of days ago for a little bit. So I do have some questions here. So first of all, where where how did you buy Bitcoin? So you just get the Coinbase app. You hook up your bank account or a credit card or a debit card, and then you're you can kind of just do it. Hmm. Okay. And then I see the thing is with Bitcoin now is I like, I, I, it's, I, I'm not really convinced that it's going to go higher than where it is now. Yeah. I, somebody told thing, me an exorbitantly high number that it's going to go to. And, but then I was like, that's exactly what you would say if you had a bunch of Bitcoin and you wanted it to go to that high. Right. A, because you're deluding yourself, and B, because you want to delude me. So What I'm really... So I, I've been kicking myself. Like, I remember back in 2009, like, an undergrad in college, and it, it was, I was reading some article about this new Bitcoin thing. It's this new digital currency based on this cryptography stuff. And I remember just thinking, this seems weird. I'm not going to... this. I'm not going to do anything with this. This seems really... I, I, this isn't worth getting into. But if I had just, like, installed a little piece of software and mined a little bit of bitcoin then like i would have bought a house now <laughs> yeah totally i i equally beat myself up about it um H- hindsight's 2020 20, but think, like i think the thing you got to remember is like okay so remember when bitcoin hit a thousand like two or three years ago oh yeah so what really would have happened you would have sold, sold that. when it hit yeah, yeah. and um, then i'd be kicking myself now you like, gotta you know, like be a tr- you can't just have kind of done a little bit of a coin on the side you have to really be a true believer to like actually commit to, to this. yeah. Well, I mean, if I had just like mined a little bit, a little bit on the side for a few months back when it first came out, yeah, and then sold it even when it hit a thousand dollars, I think would you know that wouldn't have been nothing. Yeah, no, it wouldn't have been bad. Yeah, I, I um, regret it too. Yeah, I know the feeling. So I'm thinking, yeah. So, so one of my coworkers uh, has like realized that back when Dogecoin came out, he mined just like so several thousand, like maybe nine thousand Dogecoins or something like that. Wow. Or uh, 
yeah, something like that. Maybe it was even more. Uh, but anyway, Dogecoin's now worth 1.5 cents. So he's now going back being like, whoa, wait, I have... I, I guess I forget exactly how the numbers work in, worked out because he has like $1,000 in Dogecoin now. This headline says, Dogecoin market cap hits $1 billion to its creator's dismay. So that's pretty <laughs> funny. <laughs> Uh, I kind of, yeah, I kind of wish that I like knew more about how to like get into this in such a way that I stand some chance of actually coming out ahead. But yeah, you know, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. That's basically how I feel. You know, we just I think we are who we are, and that's why we didn't yeah. get into Bitcoin at the time, and why we would have sold early if we had. So. Yeah, I yeah. I just I remember I remember looking at this and like reading some article, you know, on on probably Ars Technica and thinking this seems really weird and kind of stupid. Yeah. Yeah, I had the same I had the exact same uh feeling about it. And it's it's so frustrating cuz we're the exact kind of people that would have messed with this stuff. Right. We're still I, in college I, at the time. I should be rich right now. <laughs> free we had free power. We're like we I mean, you know, to we I think we are uh, cynical to some degree, but we do believe on some level that technology has like the power to impact the world in a good way. Definitely, is the power to impact the world. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, what we're in this industry. I I hope that we think that it has the power to impact the world yeah. in a good way. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. I, I do believe that. Um, yeah, you can't pass up the opportunity to, to be a little snarky. That's right. When. Kodak's selling you right. a four thousand dollar Bitcoin miner that you have to <laughs> you have to give them. Okay. Yeah, so so in terms of programming topics, I mean, maybe just as a little bit of, of background information here, we'll put a bunch of reading in the show notes. But uh, the, this, these problems, I'm trying to pick the right word because, like, I guess vulnerability would be the right word as well. They are bugs, I mean. Yeah, you know. the, these, like, bugs are these problems that are common to uh, basically all, like, modern processors that use all, like the best optimizations that we know how to do to make processors run quickly and execute your code as quickly as possible. Right. Turn out to, um, to enable some really clever, uh, like attacks that, that let attackers do things like, or that in theory, at least let attackers do things like read, uh, out kernel memory or read physical memory arbitrarily, even if you're running in, um, like JavaScript in a browser or something or, um, yeah. like read, uh, read memory from another process that's running on on the same machine uh the which could be like one password which could know. be one password which could be uh if you're thinking in a server context could be uh the like private key uh, for your um ssl certificate other company yeah right yeah. um i, I want to add on the javascript note that's the most horrifying part yes the most horrifying part because at least on some level i can control like what apps i run there's no way for me to control what JavaScript runs on my computer. Yeah, so I will, like, first of all, throw in a, a pitch here. If you're not running an ad blocker, I mean, you should be. There just, there, yeah. there, there are two ways about that in this, at this point, like in 2018. That seems right to me, too. I, I've actually experimented with browsing with no JavaScript enabled at all. And there's a lot of things that are broken, but the things that are not broken are way better. Yeah, so, I like, believe that. Try browsing even like Amazon with JavaScript turned on and then turn off JavaScript and it's blazing fast. It's you click on something and it's just instantly loaded. It's unreal how much better of an experience it huh. is. Yeah, I, I would totally yeah. believe that. And that that's it's really quite curious. The other thing to note, right, is um is that the JavaScript angle here is not theoretical. 
the authors of the paper on the Spectre, one of these vulnerabilities, have a like proof of concept that is written in JavaScript and can dump memory from the Google Chrome like application that's running their JavaScript, which is just, I mean, which is terrifying. There's no other word for that. Yeah, really bad. Yeah, I, I don't think there is any way to really do anything other than I, I've been kind of thinking about going the NoScript life. There was a um, there's a there's another plugin like AdBlock called NoScript, which I think fewer people know about, but enables you to I think pick on a per website basis if it gets to run JavaScript or not. So you know something like the Google Web Page maybe doesn't actually need to run JavaScript. You know, yeah. Um, Google Maps probably does, uh, but you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that's one thing. The standard advice here that really applies for users, like if you don't want to run no script, definitely run an ad blocker and like install software updates when they come out, right? The the uh, meltdown vulnerability um, has been pretty much mitigated by uh, software updates for OS X, um, dating back even to LCAP. So that's what, uh, two major OS releases ago now? Oh, is that right? Yeah, they they really they've they've updates for for LCAP for Sierra and for High Sierra, so you don't have to upgrade all the way to High Sierra. There are also fixes in these updates for Safari that help to mitigate the uh, threat of the Spectre vulnerability from JavaScript running in Safari. That's good. Uh, and my understanding, and nobody's really been able to fully explain this to me, but that the patches will be continuing because there's like different, slightly different vectors that you can take. Yeah. So so it, it's not just patch it once and it's fixed it's like continuously right so so i can try to take a stab at this here the um kind of the the conceptually simpler one of these uh, problems the one that was mainly a problem for intel although there is at least one arm processor that's vulnerable to it is the uh quote-unquote meltdown vulnerability mm-hmm. and this is one where um it basically exploits a kind of, almost like a race condition in the processor's uh, like um, in how the processor like orders instructions that it's executing for performance and when uh, permissions actually get checked in memory accesses. So so there exists a little bit of race condition there, and that's what Meltdown is exploiting in order to read uh, arbitrary memory from the kernel or from physical memory because physical memory is mapped or at least was mapped into the kernel's address space. Um, and, and so this is the one that is mitigated via um, updates in how the, uh, in how the kernel works for at the operating system level. Uh, and, and this, so this one is, is pretty well solved at this point uh, with pr- a fairly small performance penalty, depending on your workload. Uh the other one of these, and the one that you're going to see updates trickling out for, uh, for I mean, probably for the next several years, re- realistically, is is Spectre, and that's because the the Spectre attack here really describes more of a a strategy for coming up with like specific attacks, or or maybe describes an entire like new class of attacks. So if you want to attack a certain application, like let's say Google Chrome. You need to find somewhere in the Google Chrome binary or in the libraries that Google Chrome uses, basically things that are in Google Chrome's uh, like address space while it's running, um, that you, you need to find some instructions that operate on data that you're interested in reading. So like find instructions that operate somehow or, or do something based on, say, uh, the passwords that you've stored in Google Chrome, assuming those are in memory, right? 
Right, it's like a branch. This is the branch prediction thing. The, this is uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, <laughs> and and so you need to find instructions that operate on that and that do something like um, like re- read it or or take a branch based on it or do something that causes some side effect that you can observe. So in this case, the the side effects that are easiest to exploit right now are like if um if if you can get Google Chrome to like run these uh to like run some instructions that do something based on the content of uh so, like say a password in memory and then uh the processor switches back to your javascript and you can observe based on um uh, timing how quickly like uh, mem- some memory accesses are you can take advantage of like whatever that that um, those those instructions in Google Chrome did to the cache to like start to reconstruct what's in Google Chrome's memory, and so the way that you do that, um, the, the last piece of this is that you have to get Google Chrome to like execute just those instructions that that you were interested in, um, and and you can do that with by uh, reverse engineering how the processor's branch predictor works so so the processor has a some some silicon on it that's dedicated to keeping a table of like what it, it thinks branch instructions are likely to do and it learns from what software is doing so so if you reverse engineer exactly how this thing learns you can train it that uh you know like this um this uh branch that i found somewhere in the like javascript interpreter uh you can you can make the processor think that it's going to branch off to these useful instructions that you found that operate on passwords somehow and and even if that's not what the uh branch would actually do the processor will um sort of speculatively go down that path until uh you know maybe possibly several hundred cycles later it figures out that that's not the path it was supposed to go down but at that point, even though the processor basically undoes the execution of, of those instructions, the, the side effect that those instructions did affect the the, uh, the processor's cache in some way that you can observe um, makes it so that uh, you you can you can still like you can still use those instructions that you found that operate on passwords, even though Google Chrome never intended to execute those, and even though the processor like rolled back its execution of those instructions that was a long description but um it's kind of because this is this is definitely a very like a really clever and and pretty complicated attack but um did that make any sense it made some sense i have so many questions all right let's 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 hear them so basically you're saying that like based on the timing of how long these executions take to uh, these, yeah, these, these, these speculative executions, the ones in the branch that it should never have taken, get executed, that your JavaScript program can observe that? Timing? Like, what's the side effect? So, Is the side effect like writing to a disk? Is it, Somebody on a podcast said semaphore, which I know what a semaphore is and what we do, but I didn't know they were also in um, processor programming. Yeah, so they're... they're- there are a couple different side effects. Um, looking at the the cache one, since that's the one that has has been most well studied so far. So a classic example here is let's say that um, you're let's let's simplify this and and say you're not running JavaScript in Google Chrome. You're uh, maybe just calling some some simple function via like some inner process like function call mechanism, right? So you might pass this function a value. 
And the function might like uh, check that that number is in range of an array, and then if it is, do something or load some other memory uh, based on on reading out of that array. And so one th- and so something that you you could do here is um, pass pass a number to this function that's out of bounds of that first array, uh, and that'll have the effect of like. Um, let's let's assume that uh, that is unchecked, right? It, it'll get something outside of the bounds of the array, so far I'm with you, right? So so it'll get it would get something out of the bounds of the array, and then like load something else from memory based on whatever that out of bounds read was, right? And that is the thing that um that that will uh like pull something into into the processor's cache because that's a load from memory, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, there are various ways that you can tell um, you can tell like what part of the cache uh, got disrupted by that memory load, and and you can use that because uh, you can predict like what uh, what memory addresses get cached where in the cache. Um, it's not like a, like a just a, a dictionary that can, well you can store arbitrary things in um, the the key it's. Uh, is keyed based on on memory addresses so so you can say so you can tell like um what there there are attacks that let you tell what memory address got accessed based on like um which like which of the things that you expect to be in the cache take a lot longer to access meaning that it's the processor is loading that from main memory now meaning that uh something evicted that like that address from the crash the from the cache Right, but you still can't read what's at that address. Right, but remember how this cache side effect happened in this theoretical example differently based on what was in that first array that we went out of that that we like or, or what was out of what we read that was out of bounds from that first array. So let's say that we read. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So let's say that we that we read out of bounds in the, this first array uh, the number two. And then the, the like the the code goes and like says okay uh, so I read my number from my array and I'm going to multiply it by four and then like and and then uh, use that as uh, like to dereference some other array and then uh, right. loads that then the memory address that you're loading depends like through this chain on mm-hmm. uh, the contents of that of that first bit of memory that was just outside the range of of the first array right. Right. Yes, that I get. And so then uh, you can look. You can run a a a, a timing attack and see what um, memory address got loaded into the cache based on that load. Weird. And so that way, so you kind of have to know what kind of cache algorithm the processor is using. Yeah. So that you know what it's going to evict from, like what it's going to replace in the cache, and then. Yeah, but then you can work backward. You can say, okay, I know that this memory address got loaded into the cache. And so working backward, I know that um, that memory address would have been caused by like this value being uh, being used, being read from from this like out of bounds from array one. Interesting. That's real weird. It's really weird. And and the way that the uh like branch branch prediction speculative execution plays into this is getting you to read out of bounds in array 1 in the first place because that should trap and it, because that 
Right. That should. And it, it won't until a bunch more things have processed. Right. Because it'll just keep barreling through. Yeah. And not and not actually checking, like, hey, was this out of bounds? Well, and, and it will check. It's just that... Y- it happens later and then rolls those instructions that it shouldn't have executed back. Yeah. And so it rolls all that back, but it doesn't, uh, like, it, it doesn't roll back the change that happened in the cache. In the cache. And so you mm-hmm. can look at, you can figure out what memory address got loaded in the cache and work backward, like, in, in the example I gave, I think, like, divide by four or whatever... And that gives and and you 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 need to know about like the code that you're attacking obviously in quite a lot of detail, but you can work backward and figure out what was in this like address in the in in the victim process's memory space that you shouldn't be able to to read at all. So maybe doing a podcast about this was a mistake because this is so <laughs> hard to to describe. Um, I really recommend actually that you that you read the um, the the Google Project Zero blog post that we'll throw in the show notes, and if you're interested, the the uh, like PDF the the academic paper about this attack. It it really is clever. And I, I couldn't make it through the through the academic paper, and I couldn't make it through even the Google blog post. It was like immediately over my head. Oh, um, yeah, there are. Uh, I'll so see this, if is I can find... this is why I've got you. You know. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm doing a, a a poor job of explaining this, but um, no, you, you're doing a better job than normal because <laughs> the stuff that I've the the other stuff I've heard is like everybody's trying to do so with some metaphor, and they're like, imagine like I was listening to the Verge cast, and they were like, imagine there's a bank robber, and <laughs> the bank robber is in another universe, and the bank robber robs the bank, and in the bank there's a like. Like, Neelai Patel's Netflix password is there. And then the bank robber gets shot. But before getting shot, whispers it to you across the universe. And then you get the password without ever having entered the bank. And it's like, I see what you're trying to say, but, like, that is not a good analogy. So, like, imagine there's something like a bounce check that you can get around, if only temporarily, by reverse engineering how a processor, like, a specific processor model works. And then after that bounce check the like the program reads something from an array does some computation on that array uh, on that value and loads something from memory based on that computation if you can tell just the address of the memory that was loaded you can undo that computation and look at and and figure out what value was in that array or what value was out of bounds of that array because remember you managed to skip that bounds check if only temporarily Right, right, right. I, I guess Very that's weird. the the thirty second. Yeah, no, itch. that 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 that's making some sense. Um, and part of me is like, is like the fact that it's so complicated. Does that mean that I don't have to worry about it? So that that that's a really good question. Um, like this seems like a, a really complex attack because you need to, as you say, you need to know something about how the victim um, program operates. You need to know how the processor architecture on the user's like system operates. You need to know all these different things, and then you still, it sounds like you need to run for a very, very long time to piece together exactly all these little components that also might be changing, right? Right. So you may... the RAM and the, and the different caches are always changing. Right. So you may not need to run for a really long time. Uh, if I'm remember, I think the number that the paper gave was that they had a, they could read from another process's memory at at something like 15 kilobytes a second, which is slow, but is not nothing. Jesus Christ. So 
whether you need to worry, the the answer is like it depends, basically, right? Right. Browsers are rolling out mitigations that help harden uh, the browsers and specifically the like JavaScript interpreters against this sort of attack. Uh, obviously, it, it takes a significant amount of effort and knowledge about your target to run this attack. I mean, on the other hand, the people who put together this paper have a proof of concept that can like read Google Chrome memory from JavaScript, which is like clearly something to worry about. Um, but it, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it really depends is, is the answer. If you're running like a web server on, on like, a some, some shared infrastructure, then you're going to want to make sure that you like in, install software updates and, and this kind of thing. If you're just like running your, you know, your, um, your, your home laptop, like it, it this isn't really something to to worry about aside from the usual like install software updates um advice right so right yeah my parents asked me about it they're like what should i do i was like install your software updates yeah that's that's that's, that's all you can do that's really it and um i mean if you're running some you know if you're in charge of like uh a, a valuable companies uh you know like ssl termination then like you should should worry a little bit more and think more in depth about your your defenses right but um i kind of think that um especially if you're a bigger client of some of these cloud providers they're going to start offering plans that let you run all of your servers on the same physical machines and like maybe you pay a little bit more but you um don't have other people's processes running on your machines you know, you know, you get exclusive. Um, yeah, I could, I could totally see that. I was, I kind of thought that Amazon offered something like that, but I could be completely wrong. Mm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really not sure. So, yeah, the exciting thing, just to go back to the, this Spectre attack, which I've been trying to describe now for like twenty minutes. The exciting thing here is that it's this. Uh, the thing that I've described isn't the only possible attack like if you can find some like some instructions in your in the victim that you're attacking that cause any side effect that you can observe um it doesn't have to be necessarily a side effect in the cache people who do this research um have like have looked into other side effects that the processor like doesn't roll back after um after it like Mm. incorrectly speculates uh, or incorrectly predicts a branch and right. so there are other possible side effects to look at. Uh, it doesn't have to be like a bounds check and an array access and computation and another memory access. Like th- there are other possible um, other possible variants here that make it really hard to defend against this in general, um, both at, at a software and at a hardware level. And so this is going to be something that um, especially like compiler sort of level people are going to be thinking about for a very, very long time and something that people who design processors are going to be thinking about for a long, long time. Uh, and people who write uh, operating systems are going to be thinking about for a long, long, long time. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's exciting though. Like from a you know security research kind of perspective, it is like reading this. Um, a, a, we were all like reading these papers this weekend, right? And like texting each other and and slacking each other. Like this is. Did you see that? Did you see this? this? Is so clever. This is like really like it's it's it is exciting. It's it's kind of terrifying, but it's it's exciting. Yeah. If, if this the the scope is definitely very big, or the scale is big, but if the scope is kind of as big as people are afraid it is. It's definitely terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
there are... I know what you mean, though. Like, I, I kind of want to be in an earthquake. <laughs> I, I've never really been in a big earthquake. I, I was um, close enough to the one in the 2011 in, in Virginia to feel it. Oh, huh. But, like, I was kind of jealous of the San Francisco people. Yeah. I want to feel an earthquake. But uh, also earthquakes, like, cause a lot of damage, and they're really horrible. <laughs> so Yeah. And, I mean, this is something that, like, I don't know, it's... Um, it's probably not something to really worry about today. People will, um, obviously put a lot of effort now into reverse engineering how processor branch predictors work and how their, uh, like caches work to make it easier to run these kind of attacks. People are going to put a lot of effort into software to help look for useful gadgets that create useful side effects. People are going to do even more research than, than, uh, they have been doing for the last several years on these like microarchitectural uh, side channels that that can be used to to get informate like to um, communicate information from one process to another. Um, things like cache timing attacks and and there are, are several other possibilities. Um, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. Um, as an application developer, what do I need to do to like? Do I need to worry about this on any level? Like, is there any way that I can write my code it's, that will make it less susceptible to this? There, yes, it's a it's, so it's a little bit early to say. Um, there are LLVM and GCC patches that implement one possible uh, that implement one technique that makes this harder to uh, harder to exploit, at least on most processors uh we'll, we'll throw links to the to those in the show notes as well as a google document that describes this mitigation technique so you could build your software with that in the slightly longer term uh processor vendors are probably going to add something that um allows the operating system to tell them to disable branch prediction temporarily or to like clear out the branch predictor so that you can't um uh, so that and mm, for like sensitive areas of code, right? So that can reset the branch predictor. That's an interesting idea. Exactly. Yeah. So that like, me, for example, if you're switching into, or if the kernel starts running some sensitive like a crypto algorithm, um, right? You could. Uh, but any of these mitigations that can be done uh, in software or without like actual new processor hardware are still only kind of a partial fix, um, right? Uh, one thing I want to throw out, you keep talking about timing attacks, and I think one thing that's worth talking about is like what a timing attack is, and I think that this is one of those things that is actually also useful for sure. application developers to know. So um, one cool one that I know about is if you use, uh, like, let's say, an equality check on two strings, um, usually that'll be short-circuited. So it'll check the first character uh, or the first byte or whatever it's doing. It'll check that. If it's not equal, it'll just immediately stop. Um, or if the first five characters between the two strings are equal, but the sixth character is off, on that sixth character, it will stop. So a very, very clever attacker who has access to timing information can basically give it a password to check. And if it short circuits, then it knows that that password like didn't have the right first character. So it can try a bunch of first characters. And if it gets the right first character, then it moves on to the second one, and it sees that that equality check took a little bit longer. And so it knows now that it can, like, that that first character is correct. And it keeps doing that um, until it has basically generated the whole password. It's a really cool, clever thing, and this is why you're not really supposed to, you're supposed to use a special class of functions when you're doing crypto stuff. So, like, when you use Bcrypt or something like that, um, that, that handles all that stuff for you, which is very nice. 
Um, and this is why they say stuff like don't implement crypto yourself because you're going to screw it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, the classic example of a, like timing, um, uh, of how like timing can, can leak information and in sensitive code like that. And obviously this is really important in crypto code. The like example of guessing a password character by character by just looking at, um, you know, to, by guessing the first character and seeing which first character just, uh, takes, um, or seeing which first characters take less time to, uh, to check, um, is something that's really easy to explain. There are all sorts of really, really clever timing attacks against all sorts of different crypto, like cryptography, um, implementations. And, um, people who implement crypto code spend a whole lot of time making sure that uh, not just the code is written in a way that um, we would call constant time, meaning that it takes the same amount of time regardless of the inputs, um, but that the like code that's output, like that the assembly that's output, is uh, is constant time, and the compiler didn't like do anything clever to try to optimize it in certain cases. Right, right. That's another big one. Is you got to know what your compiler is generating on the out on the on the far side, and make sure that that's not optimized mm-hmm. either. Yeah. And so the way that this plays out in something like, uh, like, so in something like these, uh, processor cache timing attacks, uh, is like I mentioned, we can work backward just by knowing what memory addresses, uh, the, the victim code that we were trying to attack access, right? Right. And so what I can do is, um, I can, before I call whatever function I'm going to call in the victim process, um, I can make sure that the CPU's cache is filled with, addresses that um you know with my addresses so like uh I, i'll fill it with address two three four and five right yeah and then um I, and then I'll, I'll run the victim code and then uh i can try to access the, my, those addresses again once the victim code runs and so in time okay how long does it take for me to access address two how long does it take to access address three and four and five and uh one oh, the of the idea ac- being that th- one of those things may have gotten evicted too from the L1 cache, the L2 cache. So mm-hmm. then it would take longer. And so you know that something important is in that, in that block of memory. Right. And so let's say it takes me longer to access address three than the other ones. I know that the victim process used something at, um, at address three in, in its virtual address space. And so then I know that that address is three and I can work backward and figure out what the, um, like w- what the data what what the like data that the program used to derive that address three was gotcha and that's how you take the like this timing attack and transform it back into yeah that byte that that i read that was out of bounds but i was able to trick the processor into reading for it for you know for a hundred cycles interesting yeah and and it actually occurs to me also that um you know i was saying like oh maybe because this is so complex we don't need to worry about it but like when when hashing algorithms are broken right so when like md5 is broken the first like known forced collision that they made was like really convoluted um but now like as they got better and better at it it became more and more trivial to like generate these collisions mm-hmm. um and so, like, just because it's really hard now doesn't mean that it's not going to be simpler or commodified later. Absolutely, yeah. Attacks only get better with time. Defenses get better with time, too, so it's kind of cat and mouse. But, like, yeah. th- this isn't going to stay really hard to do for, you know, for years. But maybe even for months. Yeah. No, this is a real concern. Do you think Intel knew about it before it was reported by the Google people? Like, the concept of, like, 
somebody could attack our stuff like this. So an important thing to call Bear in out, mind, this is a Patreon episode, so we can be very, very honest. Yeah, totally. Oh, I'd, I'd be <laughs> honest regardless. Um, it, it's important to call out here that what we've been talking about for most of this episode is the, the Spectre attack, which affects not just Intel, but uh, Intel processors, AMD processors, um, most newer and more advanced ARM processors, because um, they all have branch predictors and none of them like clear the branch predictors when you change threads because that will would be a really serious performance um it, we we i rely really heavily actually on 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 these branch predictors to get good performance out of modern processors so just doing the like trivially obvious thing and clearing the branch predictor when you change threads would be a really really noticeable performance hit um yeah or when you change processes i guess that would have the same problem yeah yeah um, yeah. And so what was your question? Did Intel and everyone know about this? Probably, no, probably not. I, I don't think that anyone like knew, oh, hey, you know, the, this branch predictor can be exploited in this way to, um, to like to leak this information into the cache. Um, I think what, like what happened here is that we have all these different performance optimizations that we've layered on over the past couple decades, right? The way that processor caches work, the way that branch predictors work, the way that, um, you know, we can speculatively execute like 200 instructions and then roll that back if uh, if it turns out that, that we guessed this branch incorrectly. Um, right, the way we parallelize different instructions yeah. and do them at the same time or out of order even, even if the code was written in order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, these are all interacting now in ways that nobody really foresaw right um and that's i mean it's a hard thing to 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 foresee it's a hard thing to predict even if it seems obvious in retrospect but no i don't think that anyone like anyone knew that this was possible and decided that it wasn't a problem that they needed to fix in their processors um from the perspective of someone designing a processor like you can say yeah you will um you know it, it we may access something out of bounds and do some operations on it uh, if we guess this branch wrong, but like that gets rolled back before we commit any of those results, like before the the uh, the software that's running sees any of those results. So it doesn't right. like doesn't matter if we if we guess this branch incorrectly, and usually we guess correctly. Um, but it turns out that there are these side effects that people have spent many years trying to figure out how to um, how to see and how to use to like um, smuggle data across across these boundaries. Um, right. and it, it turns out that that's it's all very it's all very cyberpunk it, it yeah, yeah smuggling kind of. data across across boundaries yeah well that's that's what it is a <laughs> uh, friend of the show zach dreyer sent me um this page that i'll put in the show notes uh which is a little bit where i learned about like how you're not supposed to compare secret strings um like one byte at a time with short circuiting. Mm-hmm. So I put it in the show notes. Um, and actually some of these are really interesting. I, I kind of have read them before, but the code is in C. So it's like hard for me to understand. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but so the very first one is, is first thing you should do compare secret strings in constant time. We talked about that one um, to avoid branchings controlled by secret data. Um, we can also imagine how the branch predictor would like basically be affected by that. Mm-hmm. Um, the third one, interestingly, is avoid table lookups indexed by secret data. The access time of a table element can vary with its index, depending, for example, on whether a cache, cache miss has occurred. Uh, this has been exploited in a series of cache time attacks on AES. Mm-hmm. So this is not like a, it's not an unknown 
strategy. No, timing attacks generally are not an unknown strategy. The, right. The no- they're unknown to people like me who don't have to write like very sure, cr- yeah. critical yeah. code. Yeah. The the new thing here is that um is the idea of like finding and exploiting basically just uh random sets of instructions somewhere in a in a different process's address space to uh cause these these side effects that you can then run a timing attack on. So right. it's like exploiting this these processor features uh in order to be able to use one of these timing attacks, which we've known about for, for quite a long time. Yeah. Pretty crazy, man. It really is. Um, well, like I said, it's uh, it's it's really interesting stuff. Well, it, it is interesting, and it's like it doesn't leave a trace either when people do it to you. So, very very scary stuff in terms of computer security. Yeah, I mean, on on the other hand, security problems get found all the time, and I mean, there are there are definitely things that you can do even right now to help make your code to help make your binaries less vulnerable to this, like we talked about. And processor designers and operating system uh, maintainers will um, implement more and more, like more and better fixes for this that make uh, that that let you make the whatever like performance security trade off you want. And it's it's going to be okay. It's scary, but you know things things will probably more or less be okay. Yeah, it's it, yeah. it is really cool though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. I hope I did an okay job explaining this. I think especially the the, the first round of explanations was, was a little bit rough. Um, no, no, it was good. It, it's This stuff is complicated, and I think having a conversation about it and, and helping, you know, one technical person helping another technical person understand it can be useful um, because hopefully I have some of the same questions that some of our listeners will have. and Hopefully. And then hopefully you'll answer them. Um, which I think we did an okay job of. I don't know. It's a, it's a very wild bug. It, it really is. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll note like, uh, especially this is a Patreon episode. Like if something's unclear, you have more questions about this, please, you know, please ask, send us questions on, on Patreon, Twitter, email. Um, I, I, I will, I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we got an email from a listener and, uh, I responded back a little bit and Chris responded back like a lot. So if you want to know more, Chris will write you a long ass email. This absolutely will That's happen. True. So it it may take up. me a couple of days to find time to write a long email, but, but I will do it. <laughs> he can't, he can't help himself. He has to write the long email. So, uh, if you have more questions, hit us up because also if you ask questions, oh, you could, there's also Patreon comments if you want everybody to see them. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, cool. Should we sign off? It's been a long episode. I think we should sign off. Uh, give, of course, this is a Patreon episode. Thank you all so much for your support. You, I, we've said many times before, you are making this podcast possible. We, uh, we, we couldn't pay our editor and pay our, our uh, sort of hosting costs without your support. And so thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. That, your support makes this podcast possible. Uh, and on that note, Always good to talk to you, Sarush. I'll talk to you later. Bye.